始めHey ladies and gentlemen, legionaries, this is Lance from Lance's Legion and the Sergeant Barnes and we're joined today by Ancient Gardener. Hello Ancient Gardener, how are you doing? Doing wonderfully, how are you? Good, good, good. Thanks so much for coming on. And for those of you that don't know Ancient Gardener, he's a classical philologist guy. He's really steeped into uh, classics and it's obviously something you guys if you know my writing and stuff like that, I'm very much into the classics, especially Caesar, and it just kind of helps us map out the future by seeing and analyzing the past. Um, but today we're actually discussing something that's a lot more close to home, which is obviously I think uh, one of the recurring themes or conflicts is between Nietzsche and I assume Christianity, which I think we'll get into this deeper before, but like. Um, you know, my main thrust is that actually Nietzsche grinds the gears of Christianity or Christians so deeply because actually a lot of his critique comes from his critique of Platonism and Neoplatonism, which is the uh, underpinning, you know, philosophy of, of Christianity. But that's too far ahead of ourselves. Um, but before we you know we get into the meat and potatoes, I mean, is there anything you'd like to say about that specific topic in your, your opinion? You know, I think that um, I think the meme of Nietzsche and Christianity being uh, so diametrically opposed is the result of people not reading enough Christian enough into Christianity or Nietzsche. I think that there's a, a huge a huge space. I mean, I have only started reading Nietzsche, you know, relatively recently, uh, you know, in earnest, but. I think that there's a, a huge amount of overlap between the two that really gets to the core of what both, you know, Nietzscheanism, you know, his his body of work and, uh, you know, really the core of Christianity uh, contain. And I think that this is it's something where if we can continue, you know, in our sphere to to plumb those depths, I think that there's some very, very helpful, uh, you know, I think would yield very good fruit. You know, so I, I completely agree with you, and I think, um, you know, the most interesting thing, and I hate being self-conscious because, I mean, in any sense, it's just always in bad taste, but if you, if you do look at our perspective or, like, our area and time and space and history from a third-person perspective, a lot of our paradigm is influenced by Nietzsche and, obviously, the undergirding um, buttress of Western civilization, which is obviously... Christianity. And, um, you know, it's interesting because to us, you and me, we live in time and we think a century, a century to us is like a very long time. I mean, you know, maybe you might live a century, maybe, or the better part of one. Um, but 
Uh, and, and you, you know, even if we think like during our lifetime, we might see different eras or flavors of a time. But if you like really look and zoom out in the scope of humanity as such, you'll understand that it's just a blink of an eye. It's like less than a flicker of a candle. And, um, you know, things like, for instance, Christianity, which has been around for 2000 years, it's just a breath, you know, the breath of God, you know, one breath. And um, I think the most interesting thing is that Nietzsche is probably historiographically uh, the most recent, I guess, meaningful author or philosopher out there, right? I mean, he wrote in the uh, late 1800s. He was witness to the American Civil War, or not witness, but, you know, by proxy. And so there are a lot of ramifications from that era, especially with uh, Marxism and the ascent of communism and actually the full descent of the primacy of uh, Christianity. Um, and we're still living to see what the outcomes of those externalities are. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of rambling here, but I guess what my point is to try and say is that here we stand at a, at a crossroads, a fork in the road, right? We decide whether we go up or we go down. And I think um, people, especially like myself, when I first started reading Nietzsche, because Nietzsche is extremely critical of Christianity, um, that you kind of want to wholesale ex expurgate this entire thing. But I think as you read Nietzsche and you read, obviously, I mean, I myself, uh, before I read Nietzsche, I was very much into Christian theology. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not just a, you know, <laughs> a Philistine. I actually read the Bible. I was very into, you know, the different things. I was personally, my story is, you know, my background is a Catholic background. And I wanted to, you know, I, I felt disgusted with the Catholic Church. And so I wanted to do the Orthodox thing. Ultimately rejected that as well. But but not because you, I think everyone else should reject it, but just from my personal conviction. Um, but, you know, segueing from that perspective, I guess I wanted to ask you what your background as far as, um, you know, because you have a background in the classics. What's your background with uh, Christianity and, and the theology and so on? Sure. Yeah, I um, So one of the most, I think, distinguishing things uh, about you know, my upbringing religiously is that I was homeschooled and I was homeschooled almost my entire uh, childhood. I went to school for like one year and it was, you know, a Catholic school. I still don't to this day, don't know why it was that year that uh, I went to school. Um, but the thing is, I also grew up. So for one thing, so there's all, there's that, you know, alternative, uh, I think foundation um, that I was, you know, uh, gifted by my parents. And insofar as I don't have, I don't share a, you know, kind of the, the mainstream understanding. I'm not really sure how to, I'm not really sure how to art, art, articulate it, you know, pithily, but I don't, uh, I didn't receive a lot of the same worldview that many others today did. Um, and uh, on top of that, I, as long as I can remember, uh, my family has been going uh, off and on to uh, Latin mass to, you know, the traditional Catholic mass. And so there was, you know, I, I remember, you know, very, very young, you know, my, my parents, you know, family members and friends and stuff like that, making jokes about, you know, um, about like, you know, awful new age Catholic hymns and, you know, and, you know, the cringy uh, evangelicalism, you know, tinged versions of Catholicism. And, and so, but the thing about the Latin mass is that it's, it's very, very old. It's very, very ancient. It's very much steeped in, uh, you know, not just an earlier version of Catholicism, but really it's steeped in history. It's steeped in the Bible much more, you know, much more, uh, 
thoroughly than you know than the the current you know, iteration of uh, Catholicism post Vatican II. You know, I didn't grow up uh, studying a contest thinking that oh, it's all actually invalid. You know, stuff since Vatican II or whatnot. Um, but uh, you know, so there isn't that end to it. Uh, you know, that I share. But there is, I think, a, you know, a hierarchy of the two different versions of worship. Um, and the thing is, you know, that uh, you know, being so exposed to the Latin Mass really is what you know helped me slide into you know studying the classics and then studying in college and things like this. And the thing about, you know, the thing, the thing that the thing about Nietzsche versus the Church, right, is that uh, Nietzsche and many, many people like him, right? This this thing of classical philology, this thing of philology in general, right, is completely lost today, almost completely lost because there's been, you know, the hyper, you know, specialization or individuation of, um, uh, you know, of of the historical of the study of history uh, in academia in the West. And which is to say in academia. Um, and so whereas today you have this this, uh, you know, useless, uh, largely, you know, over uh, particularization of, you know, of different sectors of studies like, oh, I, oh, I'm an anthropologist versus I'm a historian versus I'm a whatever, whatever. Nietzsche and many of the people, you know, like him leading up to him, you know, kind of the, the academic uh, sphere that he uh, you know, was formed and that he was part of, and also that was die was already starting to die, had been starting to die, you know, for over you know, for a couple of centuries by the time he got to it. Uh, did what did not take such a piecemeal view um, of the intellectual life, and that's the main thing about you know about studying you know classically, right? That classical education itself is a little bit, a little bit of a meme, and so to understand you know what what I you know, so the, what classical philology provides is. Uh, and and classical education in general is a much not just richer but also more complete a more whole picture of existence and i think you know in as i've been getting you know more and more into you know studying nietzsche recently it's clear that that is a worldview uh you know that that his worldview a is much more you know complete and whole in mind because he's you know much more powerful you know intellectually than i am and better read and things like this he also spoke German, you know, as opposed to, you know, new English, like we, like we, like we speak. Yeah. But the thing is that, uh, you know, it's very, very clear that his worldview already was antiquated by, you know, uh, by when he was writing and it informs, you know, the crazy invectives that, that really make people, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the piss people off when the, they being Christian, especially, you know, evangelical Protestant or whatnot, um, you know, when they read him and they think, oh, this guy is, you know, blah, blah, blah. He, he killed God. He thinks it's good. Now they're obviously misreading this, but or they haven't the thing even is read that <laughs> right, at all, at all, at all. <laughs> exactly. And so where Nietzsche is coming from is that he understands so much of what was lost. He understands so much of what we lack and yet what it informs our everyday existence and the, you know, the part of history, you know, the kind of the, the, the course of history that we're occupying right now. And, you know, and that's, and that's why I think that there is, you know, so that there is still a great deal uh, of overlap between, um, you know, between Nietzscheanism, between really a past vitalism, between pagan belief, uh, and Christianity, because truly they are, uh, you know, they are far more related. They are opposed in, in important ways. I'm not trying to say it's all one thing, 
Um, but they are far more related than uh, than many people, you know, think at first sniff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's uh, certainly uh, the overriding theme is that, I mean, if you kind of conceptualize our little corner of, I guess, the cultural sphere, which is actually kind of interesting because even though we are in absolute numbers very limited, it seems like we have a lot of downstream cultural effects, um, you know, which is very strange. But uh, without patting ourselves on the back too much or measuring our dicks out, but I would say that, like, the interesting thing is that it's this constant dialectic between a heavily Christian uh, f faction or and the very Nietzschean one. And I think... Um, just as much as Christians tend to be not read into Nietzsche or the surrounding philology or whatever, I think uh, the same can be impugned against the majority of Nietzscheans, with the rare, very, you know, rare exceptions. And so, I, I first of all, I really appreciate that you actually came on because it's certainly something we have to address. And I know that um, you know Zero HP Lovecraft actually had recently a whole podcast, four and a half hours about a synthesis of the two um and i think what i wanted to do and since you come from such a point of erudition um is basically talk about the the essence or the core of christianity and i know i know i can already hear the course of the consecration you know in the background people saying oh like you know there have been literally spurks for two thousand years arguing about what the message of christianity really is right but I think mm. if people would allow us and we give, be generous with us in good faith and understand that we're speaking in good faith, uh, what Christianity is, so that way maybe we can start articulating what it is that Nietzsche is critiquing, and does that really necessarily constitute Christianity, or does it constitute something else, which can be expurgated, which it can be cut out of Christianity, and we can keep what is good about Christianity, and thus keep the civilization that it upholds. And so I guess I just wanted to start with your basic convictions of what Christianity is at its core, its ethos, you know what I mean? Sure. Um let me, uh, you know, me being, uh, you know, the uh, the silly underread, you know, uh, person that I am, I want to actually lean on some things that Zero HP Lovecraft, you know, uh, said in exactly that, you know, that podcast. This is the part three of, uh, yeah, and, and it's an essay too, you know, luckily, right? Um, so I'm going to be reading a little bit here. But the thing about, you know, and a little bit of just, you know, theological context, I suppose. There's this, there's this idea in, I believe, specific to Catholicism, I'm not sure, you know, maybe people like high church Lutherism, you know, Luther, Lutherans or whatnot share this, but there's this idea that Christ came on earth in what's called the fullness of time. You know, it was the, it was the time, it was the perfect time in, uh, you know, in human history, in the course of human history for God to appear on earth and have his message, you know, message, you know, kind of be accepted, right? Um, and, you know, for it to proliferate and, you know, as we've seen it done, it moved very quickly from Jerusalem to Rome, from Rome, it went into Europe, from Europe, it went into the world, you know, um, you know, via, you know, uh, the white civilization, you know, white populations, things like this, colonization, all these good things. So, but the thing about Christianity is that it ultimately at, at its core, it was a redemption of many different iterations of, uh, of pagan ways of belief. And so there are two things that, I, you know, if, uh, if you permit me that I want to read here. First, a, a few, you know, snippets from 
uh, you know, zero HP's piece, and then also one description from of of what of you know what pagan belief really was from the ancient city by uh, you know uh, Fustel de Collange. And you know, this this won't take too long, I promise. But the main the one of the main things that really gripped me when I first read, and, and truly, I you know, all credit to zero HP because it was reading, it was listening to him reading his you know these essays, these podcasts that he did that helped me see. Um, you know, I must read Nietzsche. I must, I must. And so, and why is that? And specifically there, you know, there are uh, these few points that he makes. First off, this is about half, almost exactly halfway, you know, in the podcast, but he says, what we should recognize is that Christ, well, was, excuse me, let me start one the segment before. Christ is not easy to obey because his commandments are literally insane. They are the rantings of an absolute lunatic. Hence that old saw, either God or bad man, liar, lunatic, Lord. But what we should recognize is that Christ's naked insanity makes him paradoxically a supreme exemplar of pagan virtue. A little bit later, he brings us back up. There's a great line from C.S. Lewis that you can't really be a good Christian unless you're first a good pagan without pagan virtue. It's impossible to wholly realize the goodness of such things as forgiveness and charity. Now, you know, end quote, forgiveness and charity are the main, I think, things that are, that do actually exist at the center of that Christian, of the Christian ethos of the charisma, right? What is it? It is that, you know, whatever you do on earth can be forgiven through some, you know, way, uh, through some way of you know, contacting or accessing the divine. Uh, you know, in Catholicism, you still have to, you know, it's still intermediated by going to a priest and saying it in person. You can't go to confession over a over a phone. You know, TV mass doesn't count. Sorry, guys. You know, all the all the rad trads were correct in that. But um, you know, but then in Protestant, uh, in most Protestant, you know, uh, you know, usually high church, you know, sects, they have they say, oh, you need to, you know, simply you know go into an inner room and you know, I believe I might be misrepresenting, uh, but you know, go into an inner room or go into the you know the you know the deepness of your heart and you know and truly you know seek that forgiveness, like recognize what you've done, seek the forgiveness. Now. And so, you know, this is something, this is a point that spun off into, uh, you know, that that spun off into, um, you know, basically all the iterations of slave morality uh, that Nietzsche rightly condemns. And I think that one thing that Nietzscheans often view, often can say is that, you know, Christianity is nothing more than, you know, the, than the, the deifying of the victim, of the eternal victim, of, you know, the bug man, basically. And, you know, nothing but, you know, saying that slave morality is good and that strength is bad. And what Christians, you know, say about Nietzscheanism is that, look, uh, you must be, you know, you, you, you must not do things for yourself, right? And this is, of course, is kind of the, the low IQ meme version, meme understanding, right? right? You must not do things only for yourself. You cannot be self-aggrandized. You can't have a will to power because that is, you know, then, then you're like Satan, bro. You know, Satan like wanted to do his own thing. So, it's and it's just like, ugh, you know, it's just, it's just awful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, it's basically, it's Reddit tier, um, you know, despicable thinking that is only self serving and is not intellectually curious at all. Right. Now, what, but the thing is, when, when, uh, you know, when Zero HP says you know, Christ is, a, is an exemplar of pagan virtue, right? He made that, I think, is true. You know, that's not just true in so, in like intellectually, but consider, again, this concept of the fullness of time. When Christ came, it was the very beginning of the Roman Empire, the very beginning, a few decades, not even, into, um, you know, into the reign of Caesar Augustus. Of Octavian, the adopted grandson of Julius Caesar, 
who had fought the, and won the Civil War uh, against, you know, different factions, um, uh, you know, for control of Rome. And he, among other things, reaffirmed an ancient religion that, you know, Rome had stuck to more, uh, the Romans stuck to more, um, you know, closely than, for example, the, you know, the, the, the Greek populations did. Uh, but it was, you know, but it was a very close, but it was something that still had fallen out of, you know, vogue in, in different ways, both in the patrician, the plebeian, uh, the patrician and, and plebeian, um, uh, populations. And so, so this is now, you know, now, uh, going to Coulange, there's just one paragraph here I want to, uh, I want to read. This is from the very end of the book. The last, uh, you know, if you don't know about it, the, uh, you know, the ancient dear listener, the ancient city is a you know book written by uh, a fellow right writing a little bit after um, a little bit after uh, Nietzsche, I believe. Uh, but it it goes through and does an incredible uh, an incredible amount of you know fantastic primary source research uh, on ancient ways of believing in the West uh, as far as we can go back. And really, this is you know to classical antiquity and so to you know ancient Greece, ancient Rome, the civilizational forebears of you know the modern West and when you read the, the book it's almost as though you're stepping into a different world it opens up the world uh that we in, inhabit uh very very uh, you know very widely to to the point where you you can't even recognize it you had to stick with it for a long time okay so it was first published in 1864 so actually you know right before you know a little bit before nietzsche and so this you know it's possible that nietzsche even read this it was written uh originally in french but re- but i believe nietzsche could you know knew french as oh yeah you know if, uh, m- right yeah exactly most of the people you know back in the day if you knew you know if you wanted to be in this the, the university uh system in 19th century europe you knew french german and italian you could probably bs your way through you know uh, numerous other things and maybe if you're you know some you know dirty progressive you knew english but um <clears throat> so this is from again chapter three of book five of the ancient city it's from the last chapter of the book that called that is called i think appropriately for this conversation christianity changes the conditions of government so reading from Coulange, we have sought to place in a clear light this social system of the ancients where religion was absolute master both in public and private life where the state was a religious community the king a pontiff the magistrate a priest and the law a sacred formula where patriotism was piety and exile excommunication where individual liberty was unknown where man was enslaved to the state through his soul, his body, and his property, where the notions of law and of duty, of justice and of affection, were bounded within the limits of the city, where human association was necessarily confined within a certain circumference around a pritoneum, which is the, the city uh, sacred, the, the building that held the, the, the city sacred fire in ancient Rome, and where men saw no possibility of founding larger societies such were the characteristic traits of the greek and italian cities during the first period of their history and he teases in the next beginning of the next paragraph but little by little as we have seen society became modified so christ is an exemplar of pagan virtue because he came in at the 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 beginning of the the strongest most powerful period uh, politically uh, of the Roman Empire, one of the greatest, you know, civilizational achievements, you know, uh, in recorded history, and therefore, 
even though his message was truly, you know, what it did was it opened up the, you know, that's, that's, uh, it, it liberated the individual from being, uh, from, from being religiously, as, you know, as he says, enslaved to the state. It, it made, it meant that now your religion was a personal, you know, was a personal matter. It was totally internal and it was divorced from terrestrial things. Worship was not something that was done according, you know, to state mandated, uh, state mandated uh, prescriptions, and so, and this was, you know, very, very different. But also, it meant that it was, you know, very flexible. And it helped, you know, it helped. Uh, it appealed to many uh, in ancient Rome because it said it gave them much more freedom and, it was, and it much more individual liberty in a theological and a spiritual sense. And, and truly it was, if, you know, this is a messy connection, I still have to, I still have to really think through a lot of, you know, what I'm, you know, expounding here. And I, you know, thank you for the opportunity to do so on your, on your podcast, Lance. Uh, No problem. And Sergeant Barnes. But, (laughs) but the thing is, uh, you know, Christ, by being an example of pagan virtue, by being the perfect pagan, uh, you know, therefore was the first Christian. By saying that, by saying that, if you are the perfect pagan, you are in the correct state of mind to be a Christian. Like you actually are a Christian because you have all of the, you know, all of the, uh, all of the the prerequisites to be a Christian. And the one thing then to add into it is, uh, is charity, charity to the other, to the foreigner, to the stranger, to the people outside of your state. Religious belief is no longer related to is no rather is no longer relegated to only your uh, your kin, and you know that doesn't mean that he totally erased the connection to kin, but it means that it opened it now that connection can be had with anyone else, and it doesn't again you know efface the importance of uh, you know of you know, uh, you know of patriotism of you know valuing you know prioritizing your neighbor and uh you know your countrymen over uh you know over the stranger but it does mean that you know that you don't necessarily you are no longer religiously required to hate the other um you know so so from this comes mercy forgiveness from you know turning the other cheek forgiving you know 700 you know seven times 70 seven times 70 times things like this and so what christ you know really uh, you know what Christ really was was, you know, both the perfect pagan and the perfect Nietzschean. Uh, you know, to be a little bit you know blunt and rough about it, and there and he was both by being a perfect Christian, and you know the, it seems as though the excesses of pagan belief were you know to be overly vital, overly strong to be say no, you know we must destroy the foreigner, we must. Uh, you know, prioritize the city and the, you know, and the political, you know, the polity over others as a matter of belief versus the excesses of the Christian era being, no, you must always, you know, forget yourself and your terrestrial connections, you know, to the point of martyrdom and not just martyrdom because you're saying, you're telling the Roman officials that, no, you can throw into the lions because I'm not going to sacrifice to your gods, but also to the point of, oh, if my child is murdered, I must publicly forgive. You know, I must immediately within hours, you know, go out, go online, go on TV and publicly forgive the murderer. Um, you know, so, you know, excesses of strength, excesses of weakness. And so of course that's going to be a diametrical opposition. That's going to seem like a diametrical opposition. However, 
where the meeting point is is when your act was you know is in the fullness of belief is in the fullness of practicing these kinds of things and of understanding that christianity is not divorced from the pagan world uh, and pay, because it it came directly from the pagan world and you know the, what and the other thing too you know the last uh, and i'll finish this you know this point here the last you know aspect of the fullness of time uh, as a Catholic concept, is that all history points to the time when Christ is on earth. And, you know, so we can take that to understand that, you know, that, you know, those years, right, those 33 years and a couple months or, or whatever, uh, you know, would therefore represent uh, the time when you had this perfect, you know, uh, iteration of both uh, of belief generally, of human belief, and that therefore something that's totally pagan and totally Christian. Um, and so, you know, it's, and so the the mandate for the individual then is to understand both sides, not to say I am both, you know, Catholic and this, but to say, you know, but to understand that to be Catholic, to be, you know, and the, which is therefore you know, kind of the, you know, the most, you know, the, the, the oldest, richest form of Christianity, um, you know, as far as you know, many people are concerned, myself included, but also to be pagan or vitalist uh, or, or Nietzschean or whatnot requires elements of what both sides, you know, requires you to be perfectly, uh, perfectly both. And that there is a way to synthesize both of them there, you know, but of course that's, that's something that's open to the individual. That is the individual's job to explore how that manifests. And there's other things that zero HP says about this. I'm not going to get into them now, but you know, I cannot, you know, I, I cannot, uh, you know, recommend the, you know, the, uh, you know, zero HPs, you know, either the ancient city, uh, you know, for everyone to read, but, all, but it's a, it's a difficult book. It's, you know, kind of, you know, burdened by translation ease at, at times. And that's, you know, something that I have, you know, many, that many language scholars, you know, language scholars have, uh, you know, have experience with because translation ease is, you know, so, is something unavoidable. Um, but also everyone needs to read or, and, or listen to multiple times, many times over, uh, Zero HP's series marooned in the deepest darkness of the ultimate nightmare abyss. Excellent name for podcast because this is what it is. If we're going to if we're going to make any progress in the future, we need to get over it. We need to get over the fact that you know the boomer cons can do this, and the evangel you know the the evangelitards can do this, and the Nietzsche cucks can do this or whatnot. There's there need you need to be able to transcend all of these things. And you need to do that not in a way of not in this feminine way of wondering like, ooh, my bros online are going to be worried that I'm posting about Christ and you know bathing in the blood of my enemies or something like this. <laughs> the point is that it's all the individual. It's all you know comes together on the individual level, and so, only by. So I, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't want to interrupt you because I, I I just didn't want you to go too far away from this thread, but. Basically, you know, just to add to your point is that, uh, I mean, I, to give you guys conception of what Ancient Gardener is talking about is basically, you know, one can't be a Christian without having first been a pagan, which is to say one can't, you know, you can't be magnanimous if you have no claws, which is one of the, you know, great quotes of Nietzsche. But like, basically, the idea is that, you know, um, there are broken slave like uh, beaten donkey type dudes that go around spouting piety um, yet they can't really be Christian because they never first had any power in the first place to be pious over and I, I guess that's something that I think uh, provides um, dy a dynamic understanding of, of uh, Christianity and it's part of the reason why I think that like um, 
Catholicism, but most importantly, like uh, Orthodoxy, or the closer you get to the origin of Christianity, um, the the play of tradition, not just sola scriptura kind of like ethos, it, why it's so important is because um, it kind of gives that holistic understanding of life is that they expect, you know, priests expect to be parish, you know, their parishioners to be men and women, not, you know, already broken in, domesticated, you know, whatever the fuck. And so that is the dynamic that we're suffering from now, which I am assuming, obviously, you would probably disagree. And that's part of the uh, overcoming that we're trying to understand and maybe to uh, have a revelation to us from Christ. But is the idea that, you know, it, it, it's it's um, Christianity 2000 years on has bred a human being or at least a strata of human being uh, to be basically been born like chihuahuas instead of wolves you know what i mean and um you know that's that's nietzsche's critique is that the the christians of his time and you have to remember the 1800s the 1800 you know christian of his time was just the guy that went to church on the weekends who banged hookers during the week uh who wasn't really necessarily christian and the ones that were like necessarily um self-described atheists or communists or socialists of his time, obviously communists later on in his life, um, were the ones that were atheists, yet they were spiritually, quote-unquote, Christian. And so there's a lot of, and, and don't get confused, audience, like this doesn't mean that he's talking about the Christian you, Christian. He's talking about the specimen which called itself Christian at his time. So there's this dynamic that I think people are not taking into account as well. You know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And if you could continue going down that thread, I, I just wanted to give some kind of like uh, a little bit of footnotes right there for you. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you. I, um, you know, I am a, I am both highly domesticated and highly feral. And so <laughs> if I just keep going, um, you know, and, and not feral in a good way, you know, in a, in a dirty, you know, you know, uh, you know, anyway, if I keep going, please do, you know, censor me. Um, no, no. So, so, but the thing is that, uh, you know, it's, look, I'm trying, I'm trying to find the quote right now, but this, the, the thing about talking about religion is exactly the problem that you described, right? Uh, I'm just going to read, you know, here. This is what Zero HP says on it. This is in an earlier episode of the same series. This, you know, religion uh, is an easy topic to understand if you can maintain an impartial disposition. But it is nearly impossible to, t uh, it is a nearly impossible topic to talk about because it occupies a mental territory which is perpetually inflamed. In order to understand the nature of religious sentiments, one must view them from the outside. That is, we must be able to look at them from the perspective of one who is not possessed by them. And he goes on to you know, develop this point. But yeah, it's so, it is incredibly hard for many, many people to hear any criticism of their belief system and not interpret it as a personal attack. And that's, I mean, that's, and that's something that we're evolved to do. Right. That's something you know, we are we are over we're uh, evolved to, you know, to over uh, to over identify agency. Right. To to find, you know, to find patterns where there aren't there or to, you know, impute intent that isn't there because we're kind of always, you know, we're always uh, at various levels of threat. Assessment. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and we're also evolved to be in that tension. Like that is where we exist. That's what the that's what the Greeks, you know, had right about the agon. It is about the contest It is about the noble suffering 
that, that, that breeds the better human, that breeds the better specimen. Not just because, you know, eugenics is the other thing, but rather because that is at an individual level, at a spiritual level, that is how you move forward, um, you know, in that is how you move forward in your own pursuit of meaning, right? And another thing too that, uh, and, and and that meaning is something that's also lost a lot on, you know, the new, you know, in the new church, right? Especially post-Vatican II, um, because it's true. You have all these, you know, these annoying Chihuahua-like people uh, who are do- who are just, you know, running around trying to, you know, inflict the lo- inflict the longhouse on their fellow Christians as a matter of course, and it is simply despicable. It is simply despicable and it is enough to help to make you know it is enough to where i totally get right i totally understand everyone who uh if they you know who if they you know somewhat easy reasoned their way out of you know attending church or whatnot or really people who say who look around and say or and and observe you know slave morality and its consequences and over feminization and its consequences and the and the the relinquishing and uh the the relinquishing of you know, of the male persona of masculinity in favor of, you know, deferring eternally to, you know, to, you know, the den mother. Uh, why would you stick around if you don't have a better reason, you know? And, and I, you know, went through my own periods of, you know, lapsing in faith and whatnot. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've been there as well. But the whole thing is, you know, is that so many, you know, most of the arguments are true. Most of the arguments, you know, you have incredible, and if not true, then you at least have, you know, evidence for them, right? You have a, a great deal of people who are just, you know, terrible <laughs> believers, and they, they, they hang on to labels that they should, that they don't deserve. And, you know, but the thing is, and, you know, uh, the thing is also, one thing to remember, um, yeah, and this is this is present in my mind because I have young children, and uh, and they're both boys, and so they are. You know, um, there's nothing more. Congratulations, pagan. by the way. Thank you, thank you. It's yeah, it's great. Believe me. Um, you know, but the, but the thing is, like, there's nothing more pagan than a small than a toddler boy, you know, than um, you know, th- than a newborn infant who, uh, you know, the first intimations that you, that you, you know, that you can observe this if you, you know, cause you're up at night with them or whatever, you, you're looking at them all the time. The first intimations of aggression they have is say, feed me, right? Is say, is to say, give me the appetite, fulfill my appetites, give me what I need. I, I will take it from you with the only force that I have. And that is to, you know, that is to scream, right? And that is to, you know, to you know, chomp down on the bottle and things like this. Right. And it is, it is pure aggression. And, you know, you don't see, uh, you don't see, uh, you know, young girls, I'm not saying they don't get aggressive, but you don't see young girls uh, explore the world in the same way as young boys do because they, they are observed to do, they are uh, evolved to observe rather than to explore. And, and so, you know, my two-year-old, you know, quite appreciates my, you know, how old is he like, you know, uh, 11 week old or whatever, you know, three, three-ish month old. And, um uh but he expresses that by you know just like oh i'm gonna come over here and smile him and kiss him then just like you know wind up and give him a full-blown like one head 180 degree just slap on the head you know oh that was great that was sick you know and the the little boy is like well you know completely unfazed you know we're you know we domesticators are here this is this that other thing so the thing is that we all start as, as instinctive animals we all start from the standpoint that that 
you know, a pre-Christian worldview, you know, share of saying, no, it is about, you know, it is about you know, planting your feet and claiming territory and taking what you can because everyone is out for, you know, and this is, I'm, I'm doing many pagans as a service here, right? But, you know, that's okay. or much of the pagan worldview. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that, you know, you have, uh, you know, you have this ethos that animates the pre-Christian world. This you must claim your own space and no one else will do it for you. And if uh, someone claims your space from you and you do not defend it, that's on you, not them. You are the weak one. And so that is completely counter to Christianity. Mm-hmm. That says yield, 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 yield. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I guess in a way, I, you know, full, full disclosure to the audience, and I'm sure that the, the people that joined my, my transmission often know my personal beliefs and stuff like that, make no secret of it. But for the sake of this uh, conversation and to maybe expound on the more most, more inner questions that we have, I will play devil's advocate. So please, audience, don't get pissed off. Like I said, let's just uh, play it out. But, you know, uh, people would make the argument, especially new era, you know, Jesus Christ, uh, female pastor would tell you, you know, to offer the other cheek or that, uh, for instance, you shouldn't accept um, migrants invading, raping your children, or you should because, you know, Jesus said that let there be no Greek or Jew, all are one in Christ and so on. Um, what is your, what, what is the, you know, I guess maybe more correct vision of that? What would you say to that uh, female pastor, you know what I mean, aside from Timothy 2.12? Oh, come on, you take the easy answer from me. Yeah, like, get home, woman. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm in the great, uh, you know, position of never having interacted with a female pastor, you know, uh, you know consciously. So, um, so, you know, who knows what I'd say. But you know the um, the the act of dying to self. Is, you know that is so much of you know the, the, that is so so core to the Christian message, right? You know, it's, you know Christ that gave up, you know, being the perfect God man. You know, lowered himself to live the life of a peasant. You know, uh, and and uh, you know proclaimed all these great things and then gave himself up to the authorities uh, and you know died a criminal's death, right? And then overcame it and things like this, you know, but the dying to self um, is first and foremost, an internal and a, uh, you know, and a, and a personal, you know, an individual, a spiritual thing. It does not mean that, and, and I have a dear friend, I have a dear friend. Um, I, actually, what am I saying? I have multiple dear friends in fact, and one of them being my brother uh, who, and myself even, you know, who suffer from, this misunderstanding of theology, this bad catechizing or this incomplete catechizing, that's exactly the same thing. Oh, no, you should just, just let it happen, right? If you do something for yourself, uh, it, you know, that's fine. Or, or, or sorry, sorry. If something happens to you, like, don't oppose it. Or if, so, you, if you do something for yourself, then that's bad. Again, right? Yeah, Satan did that, bro. And the thing is that that, uh, you know, we're seeing the consequences in exactly that. Yeah, just let the, you know, whatever dude like the migrant the mexicans are catholic right like don't you want more people at church don't you want you like more people donating you know and, and like my mom has worked my mom worked for years with uh you know when she when she lived out here in you know rural america 
you know, trying to translate between, you know, these desperate, you know, illegal farmer, you know, or illegal farm workers who, you know, were in terrible situations or whatnot. And they, and they know that they can go to the church. They know they can go to only the Catholic church because the other church won't want to talk to them. the Catholic church. They know they can go to for help in some way. And so there'd be all these times when I was like, oh, sorry, I got to go. The priest calling me. I got to, you know, someone showed up. That could, you know, they don't speak English. My mom does not speak Spanish, but she can, you know, but, uh, but she uh, is Brazilian. So she knows Portuguese. So she can kind of make her way through it. So the point is that, um, you know, the female pastors, you know, the trans new male pastors, you know, who are pretty much female as well. These, you know, this version of Christianity is uh, not charitable to the self. It is not uh, it is not charitable to, you know, those around you, to your proximity. And even though, you know, even though, uh, you know, yeah, Paul's line of there is neither Greek nor Jew, there's neither slave nor uh, master, there's no, no, sorry, Greek nor Roman, Jew nor Gentile, etc. Um, you know, Lance, let it be known, uh, you know, I'm Catholic. I've not read the Bible in full. Are you kidding me? You know, I was too busy, you know, like BSing my way through Virgil class and things like this. But. You know, so the whole thing is that it's simply, you know, you you can't invert it completely because that is not what Christ called for. Uh, you know, and to say that and to say that, oh, well, you know, he did the money changing, like flipping the money changing tables because like historical context, bro. Like you, we can't understand that is, you know, s- stupid. It's cope. Right. And so, you know, it's it's again, it's the thing you have to get comfortable if you're going to take faith seriously. Do you have to you know, take life seriously normally? Right. But you have to get comfortable in existing you know, in that that state of suspension. You are always going to be in tension between these two poles. And that's OK. That's why we have two eyes, because only by having two different perspectives can we actually focus on one thing. And that's the whole thing here. Only by having both a perspective of I must be strong and protect those around me and value those around me more than others, but also, you know, have the spirit of charity, of mercy, of forgiveness and whatnot, you know, to a point, then, you know, then th- that's how you can move forward. And again, and also, let's be real here. Many such, you know, many believers of all kinds, right, uh, farm their, you know, the, the work of their belief out uh, to you know, to others, right? They say, uh, I go to church. I listen to the priest. I do the minimum. Mm. I'm, I'm good. You know, I don't read the Bible. I just, I just listen to the priest. I listen. I, yeah. I kind of listen to the readings and I try to stay awake during the sermon and yeah, ah, ah, you know, and that's like, that is the lukewarmness that will, that, you know, Christ said is vomitous, right? That, you know, that, you know, I will spew you out of my mouth, right? Like you, if you, you can be hot, you can be cold, but if you're lukewarm, fuck you. Right. I mean, and to add to your point, if I remember correctly, one of the Beatitudes is, uh, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. And for many moderns, that comes across as like the losers of the world, the cockroaches of the world will inherit the earth. But that's not the case. The original Greek transliteration was, um, or translation rather, is actually the well-balanced, the balance between Christ and, and nature, if that makes sense. And I think... Um, yes. A lot of uh, Sola Scriptura, especially, you know, basically, you know, hick pastors on their own, they don't have this background that you have, which is, you know, philology and also a background in Greek and Latin and the history and the understanding behind it, that basically, you know, you end up having these this abomination. And, you know, I, I think it's really unfortunate because what ends up happening is that, especially in the American and Anglophonic world, our experience of Christianity is Protestantism. 
And it's not even Anglican Protestantism. It's Anabaptist, Baptist. It's all a bunch of weird, like super weird stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't care if you get butthurt over it. I'm sorry. Like at, at a certain point, like people kind of like, I just make fun of it, you know, as, as it gets a little bit ridiculous, more and more deviated. Yeah, but, speaking yeah. in tongues is ridiculous. <laughs> I, it, it just is. Sorry, guys. But, but you know, to be fair, what, what I'm trying to, to get across is that like, there's a lot more context and nuance to the conflict of between Nietzsche and um, Christianity, and I think when Nietzsche attacks Christianity, he's not attacking the Christianity um, necessarily uh, of of Christ himself. And he says this often. He he's attacking the Christianity of Saul. He's attacking the Christianity of uh, the communists. You know, basically who became a communist later on uh, in the 19th century. Or the you know I guess the twentieth century later on, um, and so I, what, what was the background of that? And to give context for those of you that don't know Nietzsche's terminology of master morality and slave morality, let me just briefly define it so that way in the future when we reference it, you kind of have it in your holster there. So, uh, you know, master morality is a is basically a morality that's fo focused on specifically what you would associate the old warrior aristocracy of medieval and classical you know Europe or Indo-European Aryan tradition to be which is as quoted by him is basically uh, everything that is good is noble and noble in the sense of refined you know basically upright high military bearing um, strong powerful and what was bad was what was weak cowardly, timid, petty, basically whoever was a peasant was in, in, instructably, like within its element, whoever was a slave or a peasant or the, the low guy, that was what was considered to be bad. And, and basically it wasn't an understanding of being a thing in itself, which is an invention of Plato, you know, Plato and something that Nietzsche criticizes. Basically Nietzsche makes the point that it's, Bad, bad and good between good and evil, uh, good and bad, is that the uh, arist aristocrat judged things whether it was salubrious or salutary to him or like bad for him. And whatever was bad for him was bad in itself, as opposed to the Platonist understanding of good and evil, which is, of course, things in themselves, right? Which is where we get the delineation between the moral as formerly known, which is. Um, ends oriented so you know basically uh, pagan morality is focused on uh, does this result in a good or a bad as opposed to Platonism which is means themselves how you care you know carry yourself through this life are they good or bad and so there's a whole mil like you know uh, I guess string or series of, of phrase which is why Nietzsche is so um, you know, earth shattering in a way, especially for Christianity, because he is not just attacking Christianity superficially. And I mean, and the, the funny thing is that uh, Nietzsche absolutely dogs on uh, the pagans of his time, like, for instance, Guido von Liszt and so on, uh, who are basically just uh, superficially, you know, pagans, um, but really have have uh, become the thing they they proclaim to be against. You know, they're they're just basically throwing a uh, Wotan freaking dressing over Christian theology, Christian mores, and so on, and 
claiming them to be pagan, right? Which is it's completely false. But even if you go further than that, what he's trying to do is actually upend um, the Socratics themselves. And because you're so well in the Socratic, you're so well read in the Socratics, I think I wanted to ask you about them and um, your perception of, you know, obviously Neoplatonism is the one that actually had the most pull on Christian theology and so on with Philo of Alexandria. But I wanted you to kind of brief us legionaries, us boneheads over here. What exactly is the, the, the difference between Plato and obviously Socrates before and after him? What is the, the main earth-shattering difference in, I guess, the view of the world that changed with him? Well, uh, quick, what do you mean by before and after? You mean, um, you mean like, like as in before and after Plato and therefore before and after Socrates? Yes, sorry. Yeah, yeah and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm well aware that there are you know, philosophical um, impact was only felt well after their deaths. But, I mean, I guess I wanted to kind of just put it in your, your court just to give a black and white for the audience to understand that, you know, before their impulse into the world and after they had left it. Sure. Um, well, first off, I think uh, if you want to learn more about that, you should go, you know, you should, folks should first read um, uh, you know, this lovely uh, yellow covered book by uh, a certain Yale graduate, uh, Kostin Alamaru. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think it's called uh, you have Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy. And he he touches on, he, look, he doesn't he doesn't actually grapple you know, so specifically with the before and after of Plato. But it's, you know, a lot of people, I think, do a disservice in reading, you know, thinking, oh, to themselves a disservice and therefore, you know, others around them by reading only Plato, only the Socratic dialogues and maybe a little bit of Aristotle, you know, or maybe they really like Aristotle and they only read a little bit of Plato, but they simply ignore the pre-Socratics. And it's easy to ignore the pre-Socratics. We don't have much from them. And those, the things that we do have from them need to be heavily uh, explained because they're so fragmentary for much of the time. And so, uh, you know, so if anything, you know, uh, Whereas it is possible to get a decent, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're intellectually sound enough, it is decent, you know, it is possible to get, um, you know, a good and accurate understanding of, of, you know, of Socrates versus Plato versus Aristotle just by reading them on your own. You do, uh, you know, I would very much recommend people to not simply attempt to read pre-Socratics, uh, you know, solely, but also, but, but to, you know, figure out, look, is there a trustworthy lecture series? Is there someone else I can ask? Is there, are there books on these people that I can read? Because they do really uh, benefit from, you know, from being contextualized by, uh, by experts. Uh, because for one thing, a lot of the experts, you know, were pre, uh, you know, were still, you know, became experts when the university system was, was strong. Uh, and so, the, but the point is, you want to learn about the pre-Socratics. You know, read books about them as well as the writings of them that we you have. You know, back in the day when uh, scholars actually had to have a 140 IQ or above even to do li the liberal arts, so it was actually impactful. And for those that are actually looking for philologists and so on, look no further than Nietzsche. He actually gives you some of this background as far as Heraclitus and Thales. Um, but continue, please. Right. So, you know, one thing that. Um, <clears throat> one thing that you know that Alamar brings up in selective reading but also that Nietzsche brings up in genealogy of morals very very early on uh it talks about the pathos of distance right and now that both um 
Nietzsche and Alma bring it up as, oh, this is, you know, the pathos of existence is what allowed the, the aristocratic, you know, person, you know, to be aristocratic and to separate themselves from the low, the base, the plebeian, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is that, you know, and I think that you touched on this you know, earlier as well by saying, look, the key thing about Platonism is the forms, is the idea that, you know, that, that you can know something in isolation, that you can, you know, through analysis, uh, you know, this is something that, of course, you know, Aristotle brings up, you know, uh, you know Aristotle, you know, expounds on in his own work, uh, you know, but through, you know, dialectic, through, through analysis, through, you know, well-meaning uh, conversation or whatnot, you can, you know, come to know, you know, not completely, but, you know, more closely the nature of a certain specific thing. And that, that is a very, you know, very much a departure from, uh, you know, from pre-Socratic uh, thinking among other things, because, and, you know, frankly, Lance, you know, now, you know, uh, now I'm thinking, man, I really need to go back and review all this stuff myself. But, uh, you know, but interestingly enough, too, this is also reminding me that uh, much of the, much of my own engagement with pre-Socratics came when uh, I was able to, you know, suspend a semester abroad in Europe. And it's like to go into, you know, to, to listen to lectures, you know, at, at the Temple of Olympia, the Temple of Zeus, uh, you oh, know, Zeus so Potter awesome. at Olympia. Like, it was incredible. Real. It's, uh, you know, Rome's cool. Like Europe is cool. Go to Greece. Go to Greece. Don't worry about Athens. Don't worry about this place. Go to the old sacred sites. Incre- there is incredible power still lurking there. There is, and that is where you know the, the true patriotic spirit of the Greek nation today. Um, you know, I think is the finest because you find there you find the people at, at at those parks at these places. You find the people that do truly value these things for what they are. You know, go to Delphi. You know, spent a couple of days in Athens, going around this, you know, the Parth, uh, you know, the Parthenon, and you know, to add the new things like this, it is incredible. But, but do not only stay there. Get on a bus, deal with it, go all over the country, spend two weeks in Greece, do it, do it, do it. Um, but again, so you know, so the pre-Socratics, you know, wouldn't have had have groups themselves as the pre-Socratics, right? They all were their own things. They're all, the, you know, they're very, very, very uh, influential in their own rights. Um, you know, you can go on and on about, you know, an ex commander versus an uh, Anaxagoras versus Heraclitus. Um, I think that Heraclitus probably is the best known uh, pre-Socratic because of, you know, his very, very compelling writings on the nature, on how nature is defined by change. Nature is defined by flux, by, the, you know, by the fact that all things are in a constant state of, of change of, um, you know, and that nothing is the same. There's some really low IQ Catholic takes out there, like, oh, like, so you're just saying it's all relativism, bro? Like, that's pretty cringe. Like, oh, it's like, oh my god, like, you know, the, <laughs> the people who who read too much Chesterton and and then you know still you know masturbate and then feel bad about it, things like this. Um, but the thing is, and so you know, uh, and so uh, you know, and so what Plato uh, introduced by saying, yes, it is the form. You, know, you can know these things. You can, you know, you can access them in your own head. It's not just that, okay, well, this the idea that, that things have valence in isolation, like without their relations to other things, right? That you can kind of, uh, you know, and, and truly, if you go through and do and look at some of the, you know, this is across the dialogues, very, very many of them, you know, but especially I think, you know, um, especially in the, uh, I'm not going to, you know, that, that. certainly in Amino, I'm pretty sure uh, uh, in Gorgias uh, uh, as well. Um, you know, two, two texts that just have, you know, really strong examples of this. But if you walk through this process that they lay out of like, oh, what is the form thing? What is the form? What is the essence of this thing? Right. And this is, um, 
you know, since things are built on later by Aristotle and then much later Thomas Aquinas. Um, but, you know, it is, it is an erasing, right? The process of trying to figure out what the form of something is, right, is, is erasing, erasing the details, erasing what, you know, the accidents of, you know, of what Aristotle called the accidents, you know, the accidental features of these things uh, as, as an attempt to get to the essence of something. But when you do that, it's the same thing as, uh, you know, as what we're seeing in, you know, today, it's the same act as saying, oh, uh, you know, uh, diversity is our strength. But really, they're saying this as a, you know, as a political tool, just as a, we just need biomass. We just need, we just need like more bodies to throw at you because we don't like you. And, you know, and the, we want these things to, you know, be, by saying that we value, you know, the multiplicity of life ways uh, more than any one particular life way, we are immediately devaluing any of those life ways. Uh, and, you know, individually, and we're not really, you know, caring any you know, at all about the the details of them, right? And so this is how you get this, you know, this, you know, contemporary progressive understanding of like, oh, I love Indian culture. The food is so good. Have you had lamb sog and stuff like this, you know? And it's, uh, you know, and so it's, you know, it is a complete, you know, the denuding of, you know, of the riches of reality. And so, and whereas, uh, you know, and we know relatively little about the pre-Socratics, you know, compared to the the impact, you know, that that's, you know, Socrates and Plato had, especially Plato. And, you know, it is, it will, you know, the, the you know, the apocalypse will happen and, you know, our species will die out and people will still be fighting about, you know, what what is truly Socrates and what is truly Plato in the, uh, you know, in the dialogues that we have. Right. Course, yeah. But it really, I think that's the thing is that you had, because what is the what is it to say oh you know we should seek to know the true essence of something you know, or you know, the true you know the true form of something it is to remove yourself from nature or to remove that thing that you're studying from nature and to say that it you know, that it is more important to know you know this alleged essence of something rather you know uh, in itself and how it exists in itself rather than to know uh, to know it in context in situ right uh, you know how, how it exists in nature. And truly, a lot of the, you know, a way, a major way, or sorry, a common way to introduce pre-Socratic thinking uh, and thinkers to, you know, in like an introductory course or whatnot, is to focus on how they believed, um, uh, you know, what, what they believe the fundamental elements of nature are, right? And so, you know, to consider, okay, what is the, um, you know, hey, well, Heraclitus thought everything was, uh, you know, everything was changed, right? But then this other guy thought that everything was, you know, every, things were mostly water. Like water was the prime element and then these other things, right? So this is where you get the, you know, the classical understanding you know, that it's often you know, thought to be only alchemical. But alchemy itself is kind of an extension of this ancient worldview. Uh, you know, that's brought back into vogue, you know, in, uh, in you know, medieval Europe. And... Uh, you know, when people started studying these things in earnest again after they started, you know, stopped killing each other for a little bit. And, right. you know. Yeah, hermeticism, right? If I'm correct. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, the fact that you know, um, you just it, it was able to percolate long enough, you know, in certain places. Like, oh, great. Well, you know, how about these ideas, guys? Um, so, but the thing is that, uh, you know, so you you first is a good way to first encounter the pre-Socratics by to differentiate them, or rather to distinguish them from each other by saying, what did these people believe? You know, was the essence of nature? Was it fire? Was it earth? Was it air? Was it water? You know, was it not just air but wind? Was it uh, you know was it inertia? No, no, kind of. Was it you know, gra- was it gravity? Was it the fact that things all stop? Was that the, the fact that things all move? Was it the fact that 
uh, you know, is it all built up first from dirt, first from stone, first from earth? Is it all, you know, actually fire? Uh, and that's why, you know, the human body is hot. Um, was it all water? And that's why as you watch things rot away, like they all kind of get liquidy, you know, things like this. And it's, and, and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You know, right, and right. so you, and so, you know, and it's a good way to, you know, to start thinking about, okay, well, how, why were they saying these things? Was it just because they were watching, you know, rotting corpses or whatnot? Or is it for the deeper reasons? Is it for, uh, you know, different, you know, considerations of, you know, what is the animating force of, uh, of existence? What is it? This is the thing, you know, is it numbers? Is it math? You know, these kinds of things. And so, you know, is it the fact that things are all related to each other? Uh, and so, what Plato did was, you know, get very, very popular. And also, you know, we also have Plato's in a privileged position to our days, right? There's one of the worst things about studying the classics is that you have all these references to these people, um, you know, who are, you know, who are lauded by all the greats that we have, you know, say, no, but really, the, like, I think the smartest guy is this guy. And we have no idea, you know, we have no writings from this person. One, for example, in the, in the Roman world, um, you know, all of the great uh, orators, uh, Cicero, etc. You know, many of the great satirists, you know, Virgil and all the great poets and things like this from Roman times, uh, make reference to an M varies, an M varies. It's either varies or vero. Uh, I think it's varies though. Uh, we don't know who M varies is, but all of them, all of these great names, say truly. You know, I am nothing in light of the master M varies. And <laughs> Who's, who is this guy? We've no idea. We've no records of this guy. We have no fragments. No one's quoted him. No one's. It might just be a joke. It might be like a rhetorical device. But he is so widespread across a huge length of time that we have no idea who these guys are, and so who this guy is. And yet everybody, uh, you know, respected him. And so, you know, and so until you know, we can go back in time and get stuff from the Library of Alexandria, the uh, Library of Alexandria, or we can you know find another Dead Sea Scrolls type of repository somewhere, you know, before you know before Israel blows it all up, you know, and trying to whatever, whatever, you know, uh, we don't, you know, we, we, we can only work with what we have. And so, but right now you're thinking about Plato, you're thinking about his effect. It truly does reside in the fact that, oh no, you can look at things in isolation, which means that you can look at yourself in isolation, which means that you can look at, you know, you can start to think about yourself as an independent, you know, in, uh, you know, an individual soul, individual person, apart from the state and so and another thing that you know that Coulange uh uh explains in his book at length is how uh very early on in the greek you know civilization you had people relinquishing these older pagan you know forms of of uh belief because they're they're into other stuff mm -hmm. um the agon for example but you know one of the things that you know christianity built off of you know by by subsuming platonism so thoroughly was the idea that you know, you know, as we touched on earlier, the idea that you have something totally inaccessible to others within you, like that is, and that is a that is a core part of your person. That me, and that is the part of your person. Your Christianity says that, that is the part of your person that you know, you know, went worship and religious, uh, you know, uh, piety and all spirituality really emanates. It is not, you know, first and foremost from you know, from following the rituals, following the traditions, but it is actually from your, you know, today we call it, you know, your personal connect relationship with Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior or whatnot, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, that's the Platonist thing. And that is what, you know, it's frustrating 
to people interrogating it because it is actually inscrutable because we all you know live and die alone in the, you know in the space you know the solitude of our own minds uh you know our own internal you know dialogues whether you you know cultivate that or not and so you know so and again we see this kind of come to its you know come and you know become whole in the in the in the person of Christ right saying that you know he is literally saying i am the son of god um but he's a nobody but, but there's no one who can who can falsify that right there's no one who can and so you know you're going to have to take these things literally on faith and the rest is you know as they say the rest is history well you know the most interesting thing that i would add is that basically nietzsche a lot of what nietzsche was doing is overcorrecting and he even says in so many words that basically he doesn't expect you to be him and he always explains through all of his books that nihilism is only a it's a halfway point there will always be a spirituality and in the context of of course my podcast and the transmission here in all seriousness the idea is to imbibe a warrior ethos and so on and so to give reference or context to this conversation while we're doing it is because ultimately what we're trying to achieve is basically either a revelation of a warrior ethos or moral mores or way out of the predicament of the the psychological warfare that we're undergoing the subversion um, because a lot of leftist peasant revolutions are successful because what like uh, aristocratic people don't do is the legwork is the intellectual legwork required as a requisite to actually stop because otherwise what happens is basically what happened with the liberal revolutions of 1776 89 1848 is that even though you crush them at their birth physically um you are only doing a sisyphusian type rock grow like climb up the hill for it to just come back down again the weights the inertia of the philosophy comes back down because you haven't address the basis foundation and so that's what Nietzsche is getting against ultimately he is a an aristocratic radical right and his idea is basically trying to search for those who in no uncertain terms are able to come up with new valuations of an aristocratic ethos and for those of you who don't know everything that is aristocratic is necessarily a warrior ethos it, it never has been anything else uh, bourgeois or peasant all that stuff is lower case stuff um, and you see this often especially in Constant Alamaru's, um you know new book which I can't recommend enough he makes it uh, he does some anthropological digging and even brings up for instance uh, the Tutsi in, in Rwanda who were pastoralists and who um, evaluated uh, war and uh, you know ability, abil you know the ability to do pathos of distance and and different valuations. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that many will read Nietzsche and reject him because of what he says specifically, but people should be reading Nietzsche because they should take inspiration from him, and because what his his Nietzsche is not an end; he is a beginning. He is just trying to sweep away things that are no longer useful to us. And to provide you with maybe an engine towards something you valuate yourself. And part of the conversation of Christianity is that Christianity has been so thoroughly subverted, or rather the context of Platonism 
And it's very interesting that a lot of Marxists and stuff, they always um, really graft on to Platonism itself because there is this um, ethos around it that's kind of like a bored mind uh, vision of uh, the um, theistic vision of life that we're all connected to one thing and thus we must be one or whatever. Um, but what I'm trying to point out is that basically Nietzsche is getting us to think outside the box, not necessarily giving us a prescriptive, you know, if X, then Y. Now, I guess what I wanted to ask you um, is that, you know, with the synthesis and a lot of his critiques, put that all aside, I think, you know, I, I ran into, especially when I was in the military, many men who were Christians, but they were Christians out of habit. And also because I think uh, conservative minds, I'm not really conservative. I'm actually a, a what's called a progressive or whatever, but it's a, just a, a different mental model of how things are. I don't think old things are good because old. I think some things that are old are good because, you know, they have a good telos. They have a good trajectory, you know what I mean? And so I think um, what is lacking today is a real valuation of difference and um, I guess what I wanted to say is this um, here Nietzsche talks about for instance the evangel and he speaks about those who accept the evangel are necessarily beyond sin if that makes sense obviously people can sin and they can be absolved from sin however what he's trying to say is that ultimately you are beyond making mistakes per se and uh, that you're always on this certain trajectory. Um, and so I, I guess what I wanted to kind of ask you is that, you know, is there a, a soundbite maybe that you'd say, what is Christianity to you? Like, you know, point by point, just like three, maybe a sentence long, what is it really? Um, because to Nietzsche, I think it's, it's about being humble, uh, being, you know, basically a peasant, you know, be, being a slave, offering the other cheek, and so on and so forth. But I mean, to you, really, w what is what is it? Is it love, really? Is it is it you know? Is it the striving for truth? Is it what is it? Do you think it is that could be the difference between what many people see it and uh, what it could be? I think that the key practical point that demonstrates the value of Christianity is self-possession through self-dispossession. Mm -hmm. And The thing about having charity for others as a, as a baseline way to interact with them is not that you are filled with good feelings and you're such a nice person and you have the warm fuzzies. But it is that you are gaining an you're you're allowing a, a, the strongest possible version of yourself to emerge when you are working 
for others. And that is not, you know, and that strength is not just spiritual strength. It is actually physical strength. And, uh, you know, and this, and you can find this in many different, you know, in anything from, you know, blase self-help books to, you know, the deepest and oldest philosophical and religious traditions is that you must not do things only for yourself. We are inherently self-interested creatures. Everything we do is already automatically for ourselves. Everything. Aristotle identified the three versions of, of uh, you know, of friendship, but said that by far the most common is the friendship of utility. You do things for other people because they can do things for you or because it serves you in some way. All friendships are friendships of utility. All relationships are relationships of utility. It's just that some are a little, a very few, very few are a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. And... This idea, self-possession through self-dispossession, touches on you know, a very important quality about the transcendent, about transcendence, about the capital T transcendent. And uh, you know, so, so briefly, let's consider uh, drugs, psychedelics. You have people paying top dollar to be led through ayahuasca DMT sessions uh, and have been doing this for decades, actually, right? Because they believe they can kind of, you know, they can buy their way, they can transact their way into a religious experience. And they miss the mark on what religious experience really is. You know, what they do is they open up their you know, different, you know, mental receptors and their, you know, all their perception shifts and they view things in a different way. And it's for some, it's incredibly terrifying and for some, it's incredibly enlightening. But for the most part, it's kind of addicting, right? There is a great tradition in Catholic mysticism that, uh, or rather, there is a great mystical tradition in Catholicism. And the main thing about mystical or transcendent experiences, like what you know, we you can you can kind of imitate by you know dropping acid or something. But what you can also achieve through fasting or meditation or whatnot is that they is that you cannot force them; they are not deliberate. You cannot, on command, have a transcendent experience. They are only ever emergent. And Thomas Aquinas says somewhere, I have no idea where, uh, but he says somewhere that the thing to do, and frankly, it might be St. John of the Cross, but the thing to do is not to focus on the transcendent experience, is not to focus on that ecstasy. It is not to desire the ecstasy for itself. It is to, you know, to, to be, what you should do is to be grateful for the ecstatic experience as fleeting uh, and as, you know, breathtaking as it was and get back to work mm-hmm. because it's not about you because everything's already automatically about you. You must take that self-interest and put it in service of others in order to f- achieve the, the highest form of self-possession. And so the idea of dying to self, the idea of working for others, the idea of being charitable to the point of death or faithful to the point of death or loyal to the point of death is that this you know, doing so holds the highest form of physical existence that we have and yeah i'm sorry that that wasn't you know perhaps pithiest three senses but that's truly what it is 
and that's and that's the and that's again the core of, of so many other religions and i think that you know many many people get too caught up in the idea that oh the, you know, the catholicism is like the deepest uh and the most full picture the deepest and like the perfect iteration of religion like there's nothing more to it and that that a lot that elides the very brutal and scary truth that all human all humans and all humanity and the entirety of human experience is necessarily limited you know in a gazillion different ways mm-hmm. and and so any you know that even if we do get you know based pontiff and we get the catholic space emperor and we have a thousand years of you know of the catholic monarch or whatnot sounds great whatever that will not be anywhere near you know uh the truth of you know not just god's love and god's existence in heaven and all these other things right but it will be nowhere near um the fullness of what it is to be you know to have a life of meaning or to be happy or content or whatnot do you mind if and, I interrupt and, a little bit? Real please. Quick? It's interesting that you say that because I guess what you, you're getting at is two points, I mean, which I keep on harping on in general with life is that happiness is a red herring. And I assume ecstasy falls under that kind of same category. But secondarily and most importantly is that um, Schopenhauer talks about this, about whether um, experience is orgasmic or it's you know, uh, nirvana, right? And basically self-abnegation or if it's self-affirmation, right? And um, the interesting thing that you said there, and which is probably the most important and most vital aspect of Christianity, is that you have affirmed yourself into, like, self-renunciation, if that makes sense, which is the totality. That's that's what it is. It's really, it's a genius, it's, I mean not that really really you could say that it's a genius as far as like uh, artificial construct of I don't think it's really artificially constructed um, but what I'm trying to say is that that is the the most powerful thing about Christianity is that it is the totality totality of, of spiritualism right and I say that I'm not even a Christian myself but but that is the most powerful aspect of it but please continue Right. I mean, you know, it's kind of like that god-awful Churchill quote. I think it was Churchill that said, oh, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except all the other ones we tried, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of a similar thing. You know, it's that uh, Catholicism is the best, you know, it's it's the best or at the least the most, you know, honestly explored uh, tradition, religious tradition we have. Mm-hmm. And you know, all religious tradition, all religious, you know, uh, all religion, right? The tradition of religion is the tradition of trying to access the inaccessible, right? Um, Zero HP expounds, you know, very usefully on the idea of the divine contradiction. And you must have an element of insanity. You must have an element of, you know, of contradictory contradiction within uh, a religion for it to be a religion. And uh, it's one of his, uh, you know, it's, you know, he, he lays out in the very first, uh, in part one of the functionalist understanding of religion, he has three or you know, six, you know, tenets of what it is to be a religion. They're all his, um, you know, thinking, and I think they're quite brilliant. Mm-hmm. And one of them, of course, is the hidden knowledge, uh, gnosis. He's actually the first one. And part of, you know, the part of, I believe this is where, you know, the, the contradiction falls, uh, you know, falls into it. Uh, but, you know the thing is the incredibly cringe but also frustrating but also addicting and animating 
aspect of of utopian uh, philosophies like Marxism, communism, etc. Right. Um, but also progressivism, you know, and also, uh, you know, believing in the science and things like this, you know, believing in, you know, the radical materialism and things like this is that, oh, we can eventually hit, we can, uh, we can, you know, brute force or, you know, math our way into uh, the divine, you know, into accessing the divine, which you can't, you know, we will never, uh, and you can't because uh, because of you know the non-physical existence of the divine because the divine is only something that occurs internally it does not manifest in reality mm-hmm. and we even see this in you know in some of the more famous apparitions in the Catholic Church right you look at the you know when you look at the story of Fatima and people have thought everything from you know they were you know these shepherd children were eating psychedelics accidentally because they were poor and hungry out in the fields to ufos came down to blah blah right um but the thing is you know one of the it's an interesting detail that at the first couple of times that you know the blessed virgin was you know supposed you know is supposed to have appeared to these three children the two girls could they all could see her but the two girls could hear her and the boy could not because the boy did not believe strongly enough. The boy was more callous and these are young children and they're all, you know, they're, they're made callous by, you know, the, the adversity that they had already experienced then at this point. And, uh, you know, and it was only after internal, you know, revision, right. Internal commitment, uh, to his faith that even this young child, you know, 11 or something like that, uh, you know, this young boy could then you know, later hear at later apparitions, you know, after several, you know, when he could only hear, could, uh, or rather when he could only see, um, could hear the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and earlier you made a point of, you know, Nietzsche is an overcorrection. And, but the thing is that, you know, if you've ever had the misfortune, but also the exhilaration, you know, um, the, the, the ecstatic terror to be in a skid in the car, in a car at high speed, um, even in a simulated, in a simulated way, you know, if you take a defensive driving course or whatnot, mm-hmm. the, um, the way, if you are suddenly grabbed by black ice and you're going 50 miles an hour and you're turned at a four and you're you know, heading straight, but suddenly you're, you're turn at a 45 degree angle to the road the way to get out of that is not to kind of gently nudge the wheel the other way it is to overcorrect the shit out of the wheel and you know and hang on for dear life and then as soon as the skid starts correcting you yank the wheel the other way maybe not the entire way but you know you have to you're, you're suddenly in this adrenaline fueled moment of um you know of time slowing down and your reactions get superman like and you can you know you know, holy shit, I just saved, you know, me and my 13-year-old sister from certain death on this, you know, rural, you know, icy road. Um, and, you know, and the classical understanding of sin, uh, you know, from the Greeks is not being bad. It's not disobeying mommy. Listen, yeah, listen to your mother. No, it is, you know, it is hamartia, hamartia. It is missing the mark. It is shooting the arrow and missing because you're an idiot, you know, because you haven't practiced enough because you're stupid and weak, but you can be less stupid and less weak, but you have to do that, but not by like, you know, 
know, doing being exactly as strong as you need to be and exactly as smart as you need to be when you are. No, it's by doing like you know, putting yourself under intense pressure by studying for hours, by you know, the lifting heavy things, by standing naked in the light of the sun, things like this, right? It is by doing extreme things, by overcorrecting the other way that suddenly when the moment comes, you can, you know, hit the mark. You don't know when the moment's gonna come. You don't know when you know when you will be you know, when excellence will be demanded of you for the sake of others, especially. But you can prepare for it. And to prepare for it, you need to identify, you know, where you're primarily not you don't need to like have self a good self-esteem and be compassionate with yourself and practice self-care. No, fuck that. You need to understand your points of weakness. And you you shouldn't be you know, the little girl, you know, that I've been, you know, my whole life, right? It's like, oh, I'm so bad. I need to focus on that badness. It's, uh, and that's enough. No, it's not enough. You need to overcorrect in the other direction. You need to spend more time, you know, what doing what some people would call LARPing, right? Like, oh, just, you know, doing what you know to be the beneficial thing. Mm-hmm. And in, in order, you know, by doing, you know, a series of overcorrections in one direction or another, you will, you know, more closely, you will get out of that skid eventually. You will still be skidding because we're all, you know, imperfect humans, but you will get closer and closer to, you know, to, to true north or to straight or, or to, you know, the, the or, you know, toward the bullseye. Your arrow's trajectory will get closer to the target, the center of the target. And, so, and that is incredibly difficult. And that's, that's the difference in ethos between you and, I guess, the paradigm of today, which is, you know, basically even self-described, it's just basically nihilists in the form of a Christian faith, but... Basically, you know, they believe that because sin is inevitable, ultimately, you know, it is acceptable to sin rather than, of course, saying like, well, actually, the difference is that they encourage sinning or rather they're indifferent to it. Whereas you're saying that ultimately we focus on the discipline, despite the fact that we may err, that we still endeavor to better ourselves despite the fact that we will have missteps, slip-ups. In fact, we might even go in the 180-degree wrong fucking direction all our goddamn lives, but our duty and our discipline is to continue on and to get better despite that. And so that is really the crux because Nietzsche even talks about passive nihilism and the inability um, to evaluate things by weakness of will. And if you you know, if you really read him, and to be frank with you, I actually have it here if you have the patience to hear hear me out really quick. Um, but it, please, yeah, no, it's it's actually very interesting because it talks about nihilism as such, and this comes from the will to power, by the way. Um, so I'll, I'll start here. Um, but I'm trying to find the damn thing. God dang. Uh, here we go. Yeah, you know, for context, in DMs, you know, Lance was the one who told me, stop reading Will to Power. Go read something else first. Do not read <laughs> Will to Power right now. It's like, okay, fine, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, for the record, I mean, uh, a lot of people, especially even Nietzscheans, they don't consider it canonical because there's a reason why these. this is a compilation of unpublished writings. Um, so it's kind of like reading Clausewitz. Clausewitz wasn't meant to be published because he hadn't finished it and he asked to you know not to be finished but he still did it anyway but i i think it's still salubrious it's salutary to understanding him um but i think uh, it's one of those interesting 
parts as far as when it comes to active and passive nihilism. Um, and I'll, I'll just start reading here if we're ready. So the perfect nihilist, and this is 21, uh, aphorism 21. The nihilist eye idealizes in the direction of ugliness and is unfaithful to his memories. It allows them to drop, lose their leaves. It does not guard them against the corpse-like pallor that weakness pours out over what is distant and gone. And what is does not do for himself, he also does not for the whole past of mankind, he lets it drop. And so continuing on, uh, nihilism is ambiguous. A, nihilism is a sign of increased power of spirit as active nihilism. So he differentiates the types of nihilism, of course. And we'll talk about nihilism, passive nihilism. So B, nihilism as decline and recession of the power of spirit as passive nihilism. So nihilism as a normal condition, he goes on, uh, it can be a sign of strength. The spirit may have grown so strong that previous goals, convictions, articles of faith have become incommensurate, for a faith generally expresses the constraint of conditions of existence, submission to authority of circumstances under which one flourishes, grows, gains power, or sign of a lack of strength to posit for oneself productively a goal, a why, a faith. And so, before I continue, this is what General Lance, me, I do. I basically feel as though I'm too constrained by Christianity, but I'm not advising those of you who are Christians to fall into what I'm doing. This is what I think, you know, liberals are into, and I'm going to talk about right now, which is passive nihilism. I continued reading Nietzsche now. It reaches its maximum of relative strength as a violent force of destruction, as active nihilism, and then the opposite. The weary nihilism that no longer attacks its most famous form, Buddhism, a passive nihilism, a sign of weakness. The strength of a spirit may be worn out, exhausted, so that previous goals and values have become incommensurate and no longer are believed, so that the synthesis of values and goals on which every strong culture rests dissolves and the individual values war against each other. Disintegration, and whatever refreshes, heals, calms, numbs, emerges into the foreground in various disguises, religious, Oh, here we go. Religious or moral or political or aesthetic. Does that sound familiar to you, Ancient? Does it sound familiar <laughs> at all? So, so as you can see, like, the re so for those, I'm going to speak in English now because obviously my, I'm after a long day, it's mad late at night, I'm personally tired, so I apologize for my uh, Philistine-like reading from the book, but what Nietzsche's getting at is that despite, however nihilism dresses itself up as you can identify nihilism at least passive weak weak body fat ass nihilism when it basically cannot even acquiesce to the original goals that it wanted out of weakness and you see this with liberal christians because um for instance i went to this crazy anabaptist church which the new uh, you know vatican II era of Christianity. Obviously, not everyone's Catholic, but it's a very good demarker of the 1960s onward, is basically Christians aren't even able to live up to the goals of Christianity, and so they lowered those goals and made them redundant, and hence why you hear the term Christianity and God is love as an excuse, as an excuse to fail to want to live up to those goals. 
And so the interesting thing is that what we're combating is not necessarily a set of ideas, right? What we're combating is a lack of thumos and spirit. Because even to be a Christian, in my eyes, it takes strength. You have to have a strength to constantly do the Sisyphusian labor of continuing to acquiesce or devote yourself to a rugged and difficult path of the Christian, right? But what these people want to do is renounce it. To, it's self-abnegation. It's, it's a, basically a devaluing of those very things that are enumerated in the Old and the New Testament um, and basically uh, running a solve over the wounds that they enmesh in, in, in themselves to fail to live up to those own standards and basically say to themselves that it is acceptable to be nothing. It is acceptable to not even live up to your standards, to, to say that you're a Christian in name only and that is good and to be a loser is good because they don't even want to actually go out there and let those dogs hunt for the goals that they have enumerated you know what I mean because of out of a weakness and so really the enemy of our time which I'm trying to get to people is not one or the other it's not a set of moral values per se or goals although we might have disparate goals, you and I, you know, as me, I guess I would be considered a Nietzschean or a pagan or whatever, and you a Christian, the difference between us and them is thumos. It's that spiritedness of that willing to get after, the will to have your spiritual dogs to hunt. They, they are so weak that not only do they expect themselves or they renounce themselves of the need to have goals, but they re reject all others who want goals, period, as such. And so that is the question of our time. It is what is called in physics, of course, heat death of the universe. But in this context, it's spiritual death. It's a type of person who cannot even live their own lives, that cannot even have values beyond simply tearing down what reminds them of what is so low in themselves. But with that, I'll hand it off to you if you have any any thoughts on that. Well, you know, it's very interesting that the people who are guilty of doing that are the same ones who uh, you know, will will point to the uh, you know the obese lesbian black women and uh, you know and and hold them up as paragons of virtue and spiritedness and vitality mm -hmm. and this is uh, you know I think that's I think that speaks for itself but no exactly this is this is what you know uh, you know our 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 supreme leader BAP um, <laughs> calls mere life. Right. Right. That's the thing The what the, the battle is not one or one of this or the other. The battle is is life versus existence. And, you know, having been, uh, you know, I think the first time I ever had like, into, you know, the political agency over something. Right. None, rather, the first time I tried to develop political opinions of my own, uh, you know, was when I you know, learned about, you know, the pro-life movement or whatnot, you know, <laughs> but you look at. Uh, you know, but then this is kind of going back to also the woman pastors saying, bring the migrants, right? Is that you, there's so much error in such a movement because it is, it really is actually guilty of, 
you know, of only valuing the mere life, right? It's like, oh, just as long as they're born. As long as they're born. Just as long we just want them to be born. We just want the babies to be born. We just want them to be born. We just want more babies. And you know, it is it is a true criticism of the movement to say, oh no, you you don't, you know, what about after they're born? What about blah blah blah? Give us more money for welfare. You know, let the single moms blah blah blah. Um so and you know, this is entirely correct. Mm-hmm. To and, and the thing is that we have the the thing is that we you know, we, we, this is the battle of our time, but our time is not the sixties until now. Nietzsche saw that this was the battle of our time. It's the same battles what he was going, you know, it was what he you know, perceived to be true in modernity. And it's the same battle that has been, you know, being, that has been waged uh, since, I don't think it'd be accurate to say for all of time. Right. But this is the you know, since basically since the technological uh, world, you know, began began taking shape in the very early technological revolutions of, uh, you know, post medieval Europe, mm-hmm. and you know, most much of that technology being first, oh, we, you know, we have enough money and stability and political power to where we can support, uh, you know, centers of learning. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the technological improvement first was intellectual uh, advance mm-hmm. uh, advancement, and then that you know manifested physically mm-hmm. as technology. Mm-hmm. whatever printing press better uh you know halberds different military formations right. um you know and i think and i th- and you know for example and actually consider the military only up until very recently it was considered that the highest express like the smartest people the most and not just the most you know the, the most warrior like men but the most intellectually engaging um and invigorating and fulfilling activity you could you could engage in is uh you know was warfare was battle you know strategy was uh you know was planning these kinds of things because it is such you know in the same way that philology is you know is considering everything is considering you know the richness of the civilization that's long past and how and its connections you know both to those that came before it and you know what came after it um you know, considering the military situation, especially when you have mass moves of troops and pitched land battles and things like this, and all of this, you know, incredibly uh, spiritually deleterious forms of warfare that we have going on right now, mm-hmm. um, you know, drone strikes, etc. But also, you know, simply not seeing your enemy, you know, being too distant from them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, considering all of the fact you're know, being excellent at managing an army uh, was the the pinnacle of achievement mm-hmm. all of the greatest minds went to the military not because daddy was in the military but because that's the where the greatest minds could succeed the most that's that was what provided the most nourishment thank you and, and it's and and it, and it is not for me and, and you know that they, that that coincided with, with the highest levels of, of thumos yes and and you know the interesting thing is and i keep on harping this harping on this is that until until the late 1800s Every officer was expected to be educated not simply in the techniques of war, but also the liberal arts as well, because you are meant to be a complete human being, which is what a warrior is, right? It's the ability to take and give life, to govern, to destabilize, or so on. And it takes a, a total person. I mean, you have to be physically, mentally robust and dynamic enough to, to rise to the occasion. And the reason why you're seeing such a of messed up Byzantine-esque version of the military of the United States today, 
And the reason why, you know, there are so many messed up specimens in the military today, and I've seen it personally firsthand, is because the emphasis of, of culture or of life now is about mere material. And it's not about a high, higher aspect or aspiration of spirituality and so on. But I, I took this torch away from you. I apologize. I'll give it back right now. No, I mean, you're exactly correct. And what happened, you know, what a, a great, uh, you know, it's not just technology, <clears throat> you know, that's to blame for these kinds of things, technological advancement. Oh, we could shoot people, you know, past the horizon. We could, you know, dig trenches and go bang, 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 bang much more quickly with our, you know, our new machine guns or something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, 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 the lesson of the Christmas truce in World War I was that when these people got together, they, you know, they were no longer enemies mm -hmm. when these opposed enemies, when they were actually closer together. And when they're actually closer together, they humanized each other. They were able to see the worthiness of each other. And, you know, the, and it's not just, and, and, and you would not have, I think, in a similar, if you had a Christmas truce in Russia and Ukraine, you wouldn't have um, you know, you wouldn't have the the emergent soccer game break out between the lines because of the ceasefire, because of the holiday ceasefire, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, society no longer values such higher things, and one of the reasons it val it does not value such higher things is because of the effect of women and feminine thinking and hyper feminization of you know public morality and of and of of all aspects of of uh, you know of you know society. But the but the issue, you know, one of the great one of the greatest evils, and it truly is an evil, of uh, you know of the, the you know the rampant technological uh, progression, is uh, is the ability for uh, you know for the role of the feminine to be totally effaced and uh, uh, and taken out of its proper context in a society, mm -hmm. instead for it to be. Um, you know, for it to be metastasized you know, into the form where we have it now. And uh, because truly, uh, okay, I'm not, <laughs> I will not venture down this avenue very far, Lance, but if you'll permit me, yeah, of course. a woman is, as I was saying earlier with the young children, young and you and anyone who has, I've, I do not have daughters of my own yet, and perhaps I'll have them, perhaps I won't. Um, the fact that we're you know on a heating up streak with two boys means you know gives inter you know helps us have all these great fantasies like oh we're gonna have like you know twelve sons it's gonna be sick. But when you observe small you know very very young uh, you know one to three year old girls versus one to three year old boys, the girls will sit and they will watch. They will not act. They will sit and they will watch and see what other people are doing. They will look at mom. They will see what other people are doing and they will wait to see what the situation is they are concerned with observing and you know and considering the context that they're in they're much more concerned with survival <clears throat> with preservation of the self whereas the man the male children are much more concerned with what is this thing let me discover it oh i can climb up here now i can grab this and so when you have, when you have that scaled outward, when you have any, and my theory about this, I'm sure that if I looked around, I'd find the support for it, but you know, I'm always right anyway. So, <laughs> but the thing is that, um, you know, my, my, my idea. Uh... Ooh, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, we got cut off here, but 
I'll say this. He's going to come back on. Part 2 is just around the corner. So stay tuned. This is Lance's Legion. This is Sergeant Barnes. And this is The War Room. Signing off.